0: We're making our way through the book of Romans. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to that, to this great letter, the letter of Romans. I want to do a quick review today to keep us kind of all on the same page if we maybe missed last week or maybe you're new around here. And so I want to walk through just a little bit of a review because this great letter, it, it's good to review because it keeps connecting the dots. Even for myself, as I'm preaching and teaching, I'm like, okay, now how does this flow, and how does this connect, and why is this important? And so it's good for us to walk through and do a little review. The Apostle Paul is the writer of the book of Romans. If you remember, Paul was changed by the gospel. Before Paul actually has written uh, half the New Testament, before Paul preached and, and taught and planted churches, Paul was a persecutor of Christians, Paul actually tried to stop Christianity from growing, and he was trying to put people in prison, and had people stoned, and and he met God, and he met God. His life is greatly changed, and by the Holy Spirit's direction, Paul writes this great letter. Matter of fact, last week we talked about the verse that we says, all scripture is God-breathed useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, this letter that we're studying yes, the Apostle Paul put it down on a piece of paper, but Paul was listening to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit said, I want you to write this, I want you to tell the people this, I want you to explain this to them. And so Paul is writing that down and says, so we walk through the letter of Romans, we're not just hearing the Apostle Paul, we're actually hearing god talk to us because sometimes we can get stuck i even had conversation with people who said i'm not sure much i like the apostle paul i'm not sure how much i like his teaching well if you're saying no i don't like the apostle paul and i don't like his teaching what you're ultimately saying is god i don't like you and i don't like your teaching because paul was listening to the holy spirit and so as we study this and we look at these words again they're not brian's words they're not actually paul's words they're actually words from god we're learning about our need for the gospel The gospel simply means the good news. We're learning about how we need the good news. We're learning about how this letter that God has given us through Paul teaches us how he met that need and how the gospel works and how our life can be changed and how dramatically different we can and should live. Here's the challenge or the problem that happens in our society. Many people are not open to the gospel. Many people are closed off to the message of Jesus, even in our culture today. I mean, you probably know people or have friends who you've tried to say, hey, can I talk to you about church, or can I invite you to church, or hey, can we talk about Jesus, talk about where you're at? And you notice that the conversation just gets closed down. Like, they're not going to talk about things of faith. I mean, I have some people I interact with, you know, as soon as you bring that up, they're changing the direction, they're changing the conversation. Let's talk about March Madness, let's talk about the weather, let's talk about anything but Jesus, because there are people who are just not open to the gospel. They think they don't need Jesus, or they don't need religion, or they don't need the church. They don't. And I think the reason is, is because they don't understand the bad news. We've been talking about the bad news and I think we need to understand the bad news and people don't understand the bad news about God's judgment and about sin and about sinful humanity and how God deals with sinful humanity. People can't comprehend how a loving God could possibly allow or send somebody to hell. Wait a minute, that God that you worship, he would really send somebody to hell? That place you guys believe is torment and and turmoil? And many people can't wrap their mind around an eternity separated from God because they go, there's no way a loving God would do that. That idea of God judging somebody is actually seen as politically probably incorrect and intolerant, especially in this society today because everybody has that mindset of, "What? don't judge me. You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. You live your truth, I'll live my truth, and let's all be happy together. That's the mindset of the American culture. But in order for us to understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel, this letter that we're studying, then the last few weeks we've been talking about understanding the bad news and specifically understanding the wrath of God. Now, many times we hear the wrath and we think, oh my goodness, I don't want to talk about wrath in church. I don't want to hear about God's wrath, or we think about wrath, we think about maybe that being said in some movie, you know, God's wrath. But we have a hard time facing what is wrath. Wrath is simply God's hostility towards sin. That God God and and sin are like oil and water. There's no way for them to mix. They're, They're like this, they're in conflict. And we tend to look at wrath from a human tendency is what we do. We tend to look at it from our experiences. When we hear of God's wrath, or when we hear of God's love, many times what we do is we draw the comparison to a human relationship to our Father. And what happens is, if we have a very loving, kind, gentle Father, who who maybe would get angry but handle it in the right way, or punish me in the right way, then we have a really good perspective of God the Father. But if we have a, grew up with a father who was abrasive and abusive and, and not kind, then many times we throw that on God and say, well, that's how God behaves. matter of fact, Martin Luther, founder of Lutheran Church and one of the Reformers said, when it comes to praying the Lord's Prayer and it begins, our Father who art in heaven, he said, I had a really hard time with that because my father was such a harsh man. And I think you probably can understand that. Maybe even some in this room go, that's been a roadblock for me in my life. That, that's been a struggle in my life because I had a father who had uncontrolled rage. When you think about wrath, I think about his uncontrolled anger or his irrational or he was really hard or he was explosive and he had outbursts. Many times we have that mindset of the wrath because that's the father that we've seen. Let me just talk to dads in here for a moment. Y- you you have an opportunity to either impart the love of God or to ruin or distract your children from really understanding the love of God. Because your children are looking at you as a dad, and they're going, that's what God looks like. Now, that's a huge weight to put on our shoulders, but truth is, as we love and we show the the love of the Father, our kids see that, but if they see the other side, then they go, I don't know if I want that kind of Father being God. And I'll be real honest, one of my issues I've dealt with, especially when the kids were much younger, was my anger, my rage sometimes that I will lose control. And I pray that the things that I did, when I, especially when I was younger and they were younger, doesn't ruin their mindset going, my dad was explosive. I hope they've seen a changed dad through the years. But our kids need to see a loving father. If they see a loving father, there's a greater chance they're going to have a great loving relationship with their heavenly father. See, God's wrath, it's not uncontrolled rage. God's wrath is not vindictive, like, you did this wrong, I'm coming after you. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is not selfish. God's wrath is not explosive. When it comes to evil, God cannot and he will not participate. That has to do with God's wrath. He is totally hostile to evil and sin, which means I won't interact with the two. I, I, I won't participate in the things of evil. He refuses to condone it. He refuses to come to terms with it. He refuses to, to accept it. Now we as humans, many times what do we do? We can accept someone's sin. We can even condone someone's sin. We can even look past it and go, well, they just, you know, they're doing that because, oh, you know, they're they're okay. And we can tend to look past it. God can't. God's wrath is its opposition to evil and, and the punishment of those who support it. And as the scripture says in chapter 1, suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so God's against it. Probably God's greatest expression of wrath is hell. Greatest expression of wrath is one day, if the choice is not made, then the wrath of hell will come. God doesn't want anyone to go there. God desires no one to go there. Matter of fact, there is no reason for anyone to possibly go there unless they make that choice on their own and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. Ignore God. 2016 Gallup poll reported that 79% of Americans believe in God. 64% said, Well, I believe in a real hell. And 1% thought, Well, yeah, I'm probably going there. Pretty low percentage probably a misunderstanding of God's relationship, but in a similar poll, in a Roper poll, 84% of Americans said good people go to heaven regardless of their faith. So as long as the people are good and people are kind, they're going to go to heaven. Here's the shocking statement of that, though. Christians who were surveyed in that poll, 51% of them said regardless of someone's faith, as long as they were good, they would not go to hell. Let me just tell you something, that's crazy. It's not in the Bible, doesn't align with Scripture, it's not God's teaching. And so all of this makes our topic relevant and extremely necessary and very important in today's culture. And before we get to the good news, which we're going to get there, it's going to take us a few weeks, Paul lays out all the bad news. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul divides humanity into four groups. In group number 1, he says, Yes, a depraved gentile society describes our Western civilization, Europe and North America. It actually describes us sitting in this room. And Paul says, You've got to look at this text, and you've got to put yourself inside of it. And then the next group of people, which we're going to start diving into today, is the moralist the people who say, I'm good, or I'm at least better off than a lot of other people. Those people over there, yeah, I'm not sure about them, but yeah, I'm in that good category. Then Paul goes on and talks about the self-confident Jewish person. What he's talking about is the religious elitist. Those who think I'm following all the law, I'm doing great. And Paul's like, nope, they're all guilty. And then just as if he hasn't covered the whole human race and population, at the end of chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we're going to see how he tags the whole human race. Like, just in case I missed you, because maybe you're a Gentile, or maybe you're a moralist, or maybe you're in that spiritual elite group, just in case I missed you, let me talk about how the whole human race is guilty. All will face the wrath of God. All of us are guilty. Matter of fact, Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know how many people are All. All. There's no way I should describe This entire room and everybody who's joining us live on Facebook today and everybody within the city of Lexington and everybody within the state of Kentucky and everybody within the United States and everybody within this entire world fall into that. All have sinned. Except for your preacher. Well, that's not what it says. All. (laughs) All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. In other words, every one of us face God's wrath. And so our understanding of this truth makes the gospel super glorious, wonderful, tremendous, outstanding, out of this world, great news when you understand the gospel. But it takes us time to walk through this. So I want to encourage you to stay in with me because we're going to you know, kind of deal with some bad... The hard thing is, is this is bad news things, is I don't like to talk about it every single week. But we have to and fully understand the good news. Paul gives us four principles by which the moralist, by which he'll judge the moralist and the person who's never heard the gospel. Now, I'd like to get into all four of them, but you guys would get tired of me preaching for that long. I would get tired of hearing myself talk for that long. So today I'm going to tackle two of them. Next week we'll tackle the next two the principles about how God will judge and what does judgment look like. Now, Romans 2. Verse 1 is where we pick up today. Paul begins with, Therefore, you have no excuse. We must stop with the word therefore. Let me just teach you some real basic exegetical study of Scripture. When you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you must ask, What's it there for? If you get that down, you'll start to really understand the Bible. Paul uses that language often in his writings. He'll be writing something, and then he'll say, therefore, and you have to ask, what is it therefore? Why, why did he say therefore? What's he talking about? Paul goes back to when he's talking about the depraved Gentile society. Romans 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world In the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. He's talking about a nation, a generation of people who want to challenge or say, I'm not sure if there is a God. He's like, no, they have no excuse because they can just look at creation around. No one can say there's no such thing as a God. The wicked have no excuse. And so, it's the moralist. No excuse whatsoever. Paul says, listen, you stop and you look at the rivers. You look at uh, the lakes, you look at the trees, you look at the grass. I've been saying this every week as we talk about this. You drive around central Kentucky and you see grass starting to, to just come to life. You see trees starting to bloom. You see flowers are starting to grow. You stop and look at humanity. You stop and look at the human body. And there's no way for us to say there is no God. And Paul's basically saying if they say there's no God, they're fools. The other day, I was walking by my driveway, and if you all know this, I like my flowers. And um, I was walking by, and I walked by the one flower bed and poking right through the mulch and the dirt where the little startings of my peony flowers that my mother-in-law gave me years ago and they just have spread and grown and spread and grown and a peony flower if you never had one to study it is absolutely amazing to watch it right now even though it's freezing at night that thing is getting enough warmth and enough strength that is busting through the hard packed in mulch and dirt and it starts to bust through and it won't be long the thing will be growing and it won't be long and I'll have a big old head on it like this and here's the amazing thing is not only will I have a head like this in order for it to bloom ants have to crawl over the top of it and kind of eat and then it will open and you tell me there's no god god said i'm going to use an ant to open up that flower that's amazing i mean that's mind-blowing to me and that's just one example that i get to watch right there in my front yard weekend or year in and year out and beyond that that big old head is huge you think it would all just collapse but it doesn't it stays bright and beautiful it's just a, just amazing and paul says listen you got to stop and look at this he says, therefore, you have no excuse. O oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What is Paul saying? Paul's addressing the moralist here who says, I understand what good and bad is. As a matter of fact, I know good and bad. The person who thinks they have enough wisdom to be able to judge good and bad, the moralist is basically saying, I got it. The moral says, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I got it all figured out. In order to make this statement, then you presume you know what is good. Paul's like, oh, you got it all figured out. You know what is good. You got it all online. All you can't say you are a good person if you don't know what good is. You stop and have a conversation and talk about somebody about Jesus or about faith or about heaven, and many times they'll say, oh, I've been good. I, I hope I've done enough good. Well, what exactly is good? In your book, how do you define that? And it's implied then, if I know what good is, then I also know what bad is. And if I know what good is and I I know what bad is, then I've got it all figured out. And so I'm good enough, and so I'll get to heaven. Stop and think about that for a moment. Think about how irrational that thinking actually is. Paul's saying, listen, you're looking at yourself, and what you're thinking is, I'm not as bad as that person over there. I look at my life and I'm pretty good compared. They, we, they take comfort in this kind of thinking. Many times when we think, oh, I'm good, I'm not as bad as that person, that's helping ourselves feel good, and they actually have a checklist of these are the good things and these are the bad things. And as long as people do this, they fall in the good category. They do this, this is the bad category. People on the good list, yeah, they're good, they're going to go to heaven. Who are we to say that? Who are we to analyze the good and the bad. How do you know you're going to heaven and they may rattle off? Well, here's my checklist. You know, I I don't cheat on my wife. You know, I I give some money to some people, help them out every now and then. Um, I don't really lie. Most of the time I don't, at least. You know, I'm I'm pretty good about that. And we we have this list of good. I challenge you to do a test this week. I challenge you to do a test. I I dare you to do it. I love to hear your feedback. Have a conversation with somebody who you know is probably not journeying with Jesus. As far as you know, they're probably not walking with Jesus. And just ask them a question along the lines of, hey, can I ask you something kind of personal? Yeah, do you ever think about heaven and hell? Yeah, I, I guess think about, what do you think it's going to take to get to heaven? And you see what they say. You stop and think about it and say, I bet you they're going to give you one or two responses. They're going to say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to get to heaven because of Jesus. Or they're going to say, well, I sure hope so. And when they say, I sure hope so, what they're saying is, I hope I've been good enough. Do the test. Do the test. Just take the test. Take that step of faith and say, hey, can I just ask you a question? you think about heaven and hell? I guarantee you're going to hear some responses about goodness. See, Paul is saying, if you know what good is, then you're to be accountable to be good and you must keep up with your goodness. If you have a checklist of your goodness, then you better keep it, because the moralist also looks over the areas that they weren't a good person. Well, here's my good list, but here's my bad list. Let's just not look at that list over there. <laughs> I'm all good over here, but why would I consider the bad? That's what the moralist does. The moralist doesn't stop and look at themselves. See, the word therefore in 2.1 takes us back also to Romans 1.29 and following. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It's almost like Paul said, let me give you a list of kind of everything I can possibly think of. And now do you fall in that category somewhere? The moralist looks at that and says, well, I'm not evil, while they're coveting over here. The moralist looks at that and says, well, I'm not a hater of God while they're gossiping over here. The moralist looks at that and says, I've never taken someone's life while they're hating inside. And Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you've murdered somebody. The moralist is saying, well, I haven't slept around with somebody, but you're also dealing with all kinds of temptation, sexual sin, and you're going in that direction even though you haven't physically done the action. Jesus says, well, it's the same thing. See, the moralist so easily looks at everybody else and says, well, you are not doing, and so you're bad, and because I don't do what you do, I'm good. The moralist looks over in their lives, and they look over their bad list, their sin list, while they point the fingers at others. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. Look at the last part of chapter, verse 1. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. You're bad. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're doing that. And Paul's saying you're guilty. Condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the same very things. Wait a minute. I I don't do what they did. No, but Paul's saying you still have sin in your life. And your sin makes you guilty just as their sin makes them guilty. This is Paul's point. See, when a person is capable of passing judgment, it shows that an intellectual understanding and a mastery of the law that they've got it all figured out and they master it and they live it if you if i've mastered it and i know what is good and i know what is bad i can pass judgment and then i'm accountable to god for doing what's good and not the bad and paul's like is that the place you want to live your life i don't I'd say it's a lot more freeing when we could tr- quit trying to put a list on people and say this is good and this is bad. It's a lot more freeing for myself to realize there's good in my life and there's bad in my life, and sometimes I don't know the difference, and sometimes I try to do good and sometimes I, I end up doing bad, but I'm still underneath the grace of God. There's a lot more freeing. Paul's like, do you want to live that way? You're bound to the good and the bad? See, we've got to remember a Sin is a sin. Sin is a sin, and all sin is a sin, but in our human minds, we categorize them. Here's the big sins, and here's the little sins. Talked about this a little bit last week. Oh, the big sin, you know, that's murder. Big sin, oh man, that's stealing lots of money. Not a little bit of money, but lots of money, you know, that's a big one. A little bit of money, that's okay. Oh, the big one, you know, that's cheating on your wife. The little one, you know, I just uh, lied a little bit, nothing much. The big one, oh yeah, that homosexuals over there, you know, those are really big sins, but you know, this over here, this little bit of gossiping, no big deal. As Paul said last week, yes, he used the example of sexual sin and how our world is twisted and it's inverted and turned upside down, because it was so prevalent in their culture and it's so prevalent in our culture, so it speaks to a world that's turned upside down. But Paul didn't leave it there, but we tend to go, oh, look at homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, those are awful sins. Well, I can sit over here and I can gossip and I can lie and I can steal and I can cause all kinds of problems and I'm okay, with they're bad. And Paul says, you are messed up because sin is sin and all sin does the same thing, separates you from God. And all sin will be judged. We categorize. And then Paul goes on to say this, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the truth of the matter is God is not just if God does not punish wrong. A whole other aspect of God's character that we can't dive into right now is God's justice. But a just judge must enforce the law consistently to be a just judge. For instance, if I was put on trial for stealing $100,000, and my friend Jason Harris was put on trial for stealing $100,000. And we both go before the same Fayette County judge down there, and we both spend time pleading our case and say, I'm not guilty, or I am guilty, I did this, I did that. But we both know we took $100,000, and the judge says to me, hey, Brian, I'm sorry that you did that. I'm going to give you two years in prison. And while Jason comes over here and the judge says, I'm sorry you did that, but you're getting ten years in prison. We'd say, judge, you've lost your mind. You're not just. There would be a problem with that scenario and our God is a just God and so he judges everybody the same and so in verse three he says do you suppose it's almost like Paul is uh, kind of being a smart aleck in a sense do you suppose are you thinking you can really get away with judging others and and get away with it and not be judged by the same things Do you really think you can play this game, is what Paul is saying. You really think you can play the game of looking at everybody else and seeing their sin and not stop and see your sin? Do you think God is going to overlook you when you say that's good and that's bad? That's right and that's wrong? And not look at yourself? Do not think God's going to look at your life and say, hey, can we stop and... Talk about you for a moment don't think that you can be looking at others and going look at you're doing this wrong that wrong that wrong and not think that god's going to stop and say wait a minute let's just deal with you let's just deal with you we've had this sometimes in our home with three children you'll have a discussion with one of them one-on-one and they'll bring up the excuse but dad you didn't do that with luke But dad, you didn't say that to Caleb. But dad with Lily Grace, wait, time out. I'm dealing with you. I'm talking to you right now. I'm not talking to Luke. I'm not talking to Caleb. I'm talking to you, the one child that you're dealing with in that moment. The one who's here, right? She's like, come on now, that's wrong, dad. But what do we do? We tend to say, well, what about what they did? What about what they did?" No, God's going to one day look down on us and say, I'm just dealing with you. I'm not dealing with your husband. I'm not dealing with your kids. I'm not dealing with your best friend. I'm not dealing with your grandma. I'm not dealing with your aunt. I'm not dealing with anybody you work with. I'm not dealing with your community. I just want to have a conversation with you. And Paul's like, listen, God's not going to turn his eye. God's not going to say, well, let's look this other direction. God's not going to ignore all that. And so God will judge us based on our knowledge. Second principle I want you to get today is God will judge you based on your heart. God knows the heart. God knows your heart better than you know your heart. God knows what's going inside of you, and God knows knows what you're thinking, even when you don't know what you're thinking. God knows why you do, even when you don't know why you do. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy, when you're talking to somebody, especially at a funeral, and someone says, oh, they were such a good person, They, they just had such a good heart, or, or, man, I know their heart. They didn't really mean that. Let me tell you something. You don't know anyone's heart. You don't know somebody's heart. You can say it all you want. I don't know my wife's heart. I don't know my kid's heart. Sometimes I don't know my own heart. And the only person that knows it is God. He's one that understands the heart. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches and the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance now key word there is presume do you despise is what he's saying do you despise do you treat with contempt when a person knows what sin is and you know what it is and you think well it's really not that big of a deal it's just a small little thing god i know that you say i shouldn't participate i shouldn't do but it's not that big of a deal that i stole 20 bucks it's not that big of a deal that I decided to move in and live with my boyfriend before I got married. That's not that. God will look past that. It's not that big of a deal that I started this little gossip chain. It's not that big of a deal that I said this on Facebook about somebody else or I posted this about somebody else and tore some. It's not that big of a deal, God. Those are just small little things. Do you presume? Paul says, are you saying to God, listen, God, I know better than you know? Or think that, my way would work better? That's what we do. That's what Paul is calling out here. Or do you presume on the riches? Do you presume that you can say to God, your plan's not really good and my plan is good? When a person knows what sin is, I, I don't think it should be that way. I don't agree with you. His justice demands that he judges sin. But it does not demand That he judges it immediately. That's worth an amen. His justice demands that our sin will be judged, but praise God he doesn't judge it immediately. See, God's desire is to reach out to people. God's desire is to prompt people, to give people a chance to turn around, to come back to him. God's desire is to make himself known to people so that all will be saved that all will come to repentance, and Paul lays out here and says, here's three attributes of God that I want you to see that God wants people to turn towards him. He says, God's a very kind God. Matter of fact, I think that's probably his number one attribute, his loving kindness, that he does kind things and things that we don't necessarily deserve, that He's merciful, that He's tender-hearted, that He's compassionate, that He's caring, that He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. See, the truth of the matter is, is you can hate God, you cannot know about Him, you cannot care about Him, and you know what? The sun comes up on you just as it does the person who loves God. That's his mercy and grace. You can hate God and not know about him and not care about him, and you can have meaningful relationships that feed your life just as the person who does not know God. You can hate God and not know about him and not care about him, and he'll put rain on your flowers, on your crops, just as much as you will, the person who loves him. God gives us his goodness. That's called common grace. It's for everybody. God is a kind guy. Paul says also God is a God of forbearance. We've been learning some words the last few weeks that we don't quite just throw around in everyday talk. I think forbearance is one of those. I'm going to show you my forbearance today. We'd be like, what are you talking about? Literally means a truce. God called a truce on mankind. He, he, a, a pause of his hostility towards sin. He put a truce on it. God has stopped the hostility towards sinful man for now. He's called a truce for now. Here's the challenge. Mankind hasn't done so good participating in a truce because mankind has continued in a sinful way, a sin, sinful life. And God reminds us of this truce by simple things like a rainbow in the sky. Every time you see that rainbow, should remind you of how God destroyed this earth because of sin, and he said, I'm not going to do that again. Reminds us of his truth, His truce, but it won't be forever. Paul names a third attribute, and that's his patience. He has the power to avenge, but he doesn't. He could right now say, I'm done. He could this afternoon when we walk out of here, he could have said, you know what, you're sinning, boom, I'm dealing with you judgment happens aren't you glad he waits he's given us time psalm 103 it's a beautiful psalm that basically tells us that god doesn't treat us as our sins deserves your homework today is to go home and read psalm 103 to bask in Psalm 103, to sit down with your Bible this, re- this week and just read Psalm 103 because it shows us how he's so patient. He's trying to move us to an understanding of him. He wants us to know that he is a great God, that he is a kind God, that he's a patient God, and he's showing us his kindness. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 103 all about how kind and gentle and patient God is. And Paul now is reiterating that and saying, look at our God is kind. Our God is patient. Our God has, has given us forbearance. He's put a truce. Now, some people may want nothing to do with God. Some people accuse God. Some people are indifferent to God. The truth of the matter is God still loves you. God still loves you even when you say, God, I'm going to shake my fist at you. God, I don't understand why you allowed this. God, why did you do this? And I believe that's how we should even respond to people in our life who want to shake their fist at God. We still love them. We still, we still model for them a loving Father. Why? Because He loves you and He wants you to come to salvation. He loves your friend who shakes their fist at God. He loves the person with the hard heart. But if we don't respond to His kindness... People don't respond. It's the same as treating him with contempt. It's like saying, so what, God? So what that the sun came up? I don't care. So what I have friends and meaningful relationships. So what I have a son. I have a daughter. I have a family. So what I have a house. So what I have shelter. So what I have food. It doesn't matter. You think God gave those to me? So what? That's many of our society today, treating God with contempt. Here's what happens as a result. When a person has the grace of God and goodness of God and patience of God and forbearance of God, nobody stays in a natural, neutral state. You're either growing closer to God or you're moving away from God. There's really not a middle ground. It's either I'm taking steps towards him, my heart is growing towards him, it's getting more soft towards him, or I'm moving away from him. And when someone treats his kindness and his goodness and his, and, and, and his forbearance with contempt, then Paul says, look out for what happens, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know what makes the heart hard? An impenitent heart. That means no repentance. Go on living my life. Do what I want to do. I don't care what God says. I'll do it my way. Repentance. Why would I repent? When a person doesn't repent or acknowledge God or recognize their own sinfulness or need for a Savior, then in response, God's goodness, God's grace, God's God's newness, God's excitement for the gospel, then when they reject it, what happens? Paul says, a heart gets hard. Probably many in this room, I said earlier, know somebody with a hard heart. Really, I think there's probably two key ways to break a hard heart. One is is God's going to have to do it. And we have to be people to pray for that person. But Paul gives a warning. He says, Paul says, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. You're under wrath because what? All humanity is under wrath. You know the truth. You hear the truth. You're aware of the truth, but then you ignore it. And you're more aware of the truth now today. Sitting here today, hearing this message, you're more aware. You're more aware of God's kindness. You're more aware of God's goodness. You're more aware of God's patience. You're more aware of the weight of sin and God's judgment. What happens because of what you heard on this day and this moment? Paul's like, you or we, we're storing up, we're accumulating judgment. If we don't respond, then our heart gets harder and harder and harder which draws us further and further away from God. And God will judge us based on what we know, and he's going to judge us on our heart. Here's what I want you to know. And and I pray this truth. I pray this is good news for you today. I pray that what I'm going to share right now will help you walk with a softened heart towards God. You don't have to face the wrath of God. You don't have to face it. You don't have to be scared of the wrath of God. You don't have to be concerned about the the judgment of God because God provides a way to take care of our sin problem. And we're going to get to this a little bit more in the coming weeks, but we're going to look ahead a little bit as we did last week. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's an eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death, eternity in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we not forget, even though we're talking about wrath, we're talking about judgment, we're unpacking all that, understand it, you don't have to face it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the gift of God is eternal life. Let's bow our heads together. Father God.